Welcome to Karen Commons, a biblically-minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Karen University. On today's podcast, the doctor is in again. That is Dr. Matt Miller, chair of the counseling department here at Karen University, where we are just outside the city limits of Philadelphia. Matt is fresh from a run to campus or a drive, caught up by the Pendel train. Matt, how you doing? Okay. How's your stress level? Yeah, my stress level. Okay? My stress level waiting for the train was a little bit high. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, and and you get stuck behind that. That's a good ten minutes sometimes. Yep. You're just watching yep. boxcars. Yeah. They seem to know that I'm coming. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. You got to time things very carefully. Well, I'm glad you're here now. Matt joins us on the heels of a podcast we did a few months back on anxiety. Not not too long ago, we aired that one, and I alluded to the idea of uh, maybe bringing him back for some. Oh, some free counseling, uh, some free time with a psychologist. And here we are again with a chance for Matt and me to discuss another topic, something that's been on my mind and I imagine the minds of some others, perhaps. Uh, For me, maybe some selfish reasons, but also some cultural observations that I've been making on the subject of middle age. Matt not only chairs the counseling program here, but also has his own counseling practice. So he's very much in the trenches with a lot of issues people are dealing with. And no doubt, I imagine that includes a lot of midlife issues. Yep. Well, a few decades back when Saturday Night Live was seemingly kind of focused on some different things than it is today, maybe a little bit more centered on comedy, there's a pretty famous bit done by Mike Myers. He was middle-aged man. And the intro to this little skit came with a jingle that kind of riffed on the Batman theme song, making him sort of superhero-like. And one of his more famous lines was, you're looking at my gut, aren't you? as he would grab the muffin top that had formed <laughs> around his middle-aged waist. I don't know that a whole lot of parody has existed over the years of middle age. Maybe some has, but it seems to me you have that. You have the recent insurance commercials about becoming your parents. But these are illustrative of certain identifiable traits as one becomes fully indoctrinated into adulthood. But these are really the only two strong standout parody that I could think of that came to my mind. And it seems like there's not a whole lot of focus out there these days specifically on those in middle age and what they may be dealing with. Now, you lay that against what seems endless talk and analysis of boomers, the greatest generation, millennials and Gen Z. And you may wonder, who's minding the store for Gen Xers, those born between 1965 and 1980? Exactly. Who is? We don't know. In fact, I did a quick search, uh, just a basic search on Google and came upon the Pew Research page. And and when I did, I typed in the letters Gen X, and it revealed a lot of research, but not necessarily on Gen X. It all came up on Gen Z and millennials, as if anybody searching for decades information would be looking for those. So I'm sure with some deep diving, you'd find something else, but Google searches on the subject as well typically tend to turn more and more references to the Breakfast Club, grunge, and the collapse of the Berlin Wall, but little by way of hand-holding for people in what could arguably be considered middle age. But to any who are listening, we are here for you now, especially if you are a middle-ager and for those fellow Gen Xers who may be listening to this. As I said, the doctor is in and we plan to give you the deep attention that you (laughs) desire or actually to discover maybe that you really need little attention at all. We'll see how that goes. But Matt, let's hit this off with some little shibboleths here I'm curious, what are your top three cultural events or musical icons or trends or fads 
that anybody listening to this would likely relate to. It sort of if you fit into the the uh, the Gen X or the middle age category, mm -hmm. and we mention three things. Uh, these would be the three things that come to your mind where you say you know you're a part of that group. And and when I was doing mine, I had a hard time because it was like, how do I narrow down all these? different things that we could do. But yeah. uh, if I pose that question to you as we get, as we frame things out here, what are your three that come to your mind as kind of the uh, the key linchpins of that era? Well, I, you know, I think it's interesting, even that discussion of cultural moments, because Gen X, 1965 to 1980 is the okay. date of birth. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at that, they're anywhere from, say, 57 to 42 today. Yeah. And so... When you think about it, people born in 1965, I mean, probably one of them would be, you know, if you think about movies, you think about Star Wars, that generation right. kind of going through the three star original Star Wars movies, not the uh, prequels um, that are considered, you know, not, you know, core Star Wars movies to a lot of people. I also think about like the Challenger, uh, yeah. the explosion of the Challenger. I was a senior in high school uh, when that happened. 9-11 certainly is another uh, event that, you know, when we talk to, and this is one of those things about you know, people in middle age, you know, when I talk to students today, undergrad students, some of them weren't alive for 9-11. Uh, something that really for us drastically changed how we view the world. Um, and there are things that we still do today that are connected to 9-11. To uh, when I think about kind of other issues culturally, this is really the last generation because the growth of the internet, Spotify, the balkanization of kind of music and movies and TV, uh, you don't get the same type of audiences that you used to get. So, you know, earlier uh, Gen X people will always remember the Motown uh, music celebration where Michael Jackson did the moonwalk. Like that is a cultural image that will stay forever. Most people that were Gen X watched Seinfeld and uh, we're able to talk about it at work or talk about it at school. And that's one of the things we've lost in our society. We really don't have those kind of, you know, they call water cooler uh, conversations about things anymore because there really aren't shows or events that people really all as a culture uh, connect with, which actually also speaks to, and I'm not a sociologist, but I think it speaks a little bit to some of the struggles we have in our culture because we want what unifies us as people. Um, we're, we all have very, very different interests and can pursue very, very different interests. Uh, and now, for example, on TV, they don't have to really get a huge audience in order to make money, uh, where, you know, you don't get the numbers that they used to get with, you know, Seinfeld. Yeah, you know, I think of, you know, I mean, I'm a, a rock and roll guy. So I think of, you know, kind of growing old with Bono and U2 and how their music has shifted and changed over the years and how they kind of speak for a generation. I'm on, I'm on the earlier end of Gen X, so right. yep. for me it's Springsteen is, yep. a, is a huge part of that. Uh, but those are some of the major events. But when you think about, other than like the Marvel movies today, but even then, not everybody sees them, but there were certain movies, Star Wars, Jurassic Park, there were certain movies that like everybody saw and yeah. everybody talked about. And they were kind of cultural moments that people circled around. Yeah, you and I have discussed that a lot, how there's there just seem to be more of these shared cultural moments mm -hmm. where, again, even as we're mentioning some of these things, you say Star Wars and and, and people immediately light up and connect to that. And mm -hmm. even if you weren't really into Star Wars, kind yeah. of the level that a lot of people are, mm -hmm. you at least were very aware of its effect. And it also had a lot in terms of the, mm -hmm. uh, the technology associated with it. So it wasn't even just the films, but there was a lot of things happening as part of that that were shaping how people went to movies, yep. how people watched movies, and yeah. the uh, memorabilia that came around mm -hmm. that. So 
Yeah, even if you of... didn't wear the hat with the Yoda ears, right. you, you understood Star Wars to some extent. Yes, yeah. And I appreciate what you said too about there is this interesting range because uh, I picked two things. And again, I, I, was, I was trying to think, I mean, what are the three that I would pick? So I came up with these. The first is the term latchkey kid mm -hmm. because that was something that, you know, as I was growing up, there was so much conversation about that. And that was kind of a sociological phenomenon. But then there was also that played a role in the pop culture as you were watching sitcoms and others try to deal with some of these cultural issues. Mm -hmm. that, the fact that they were trying to deal with cultural issues in sitcoms, you know, was, I think, an interesting mm -hmm. uh, aspect that would be interesting to compare to today. Um, any of the John Hughes films, I feel yeah. like the whole, but, but there too, that, that kind of genre, the way those were done, the subjects that, that were, were brought up in those, and the very films themselves, if you start listing them off, yeah. uh, people will, uh, from that era, will recognize those. And then I jumped closer to present day, mm -hmm. and I already mentioned the G word, grunge, which I feel uncomfortable just sort of stating that at but uh, but Seattle. Yeah, I mean, so when you, when you point. say when you mention uh, Seattle, the city of Seattle, to someone from that era, they have an idea of why that was so significant, mm -hmm. and and that's of course related to so much of the music. So, but so there is a span, and and then the, your point about nine eleven. So that would be obviously not when people were growing up, but that generation being so significantly mm -hmm. affected by that cultural event in a way that that those from the millennial generation would not be in the same exact yeah. way because of where they were. And you're right. I think it's interesting when you look at music, and I was thinking about you know music and movies. I, I think there are certain themes in the John Hughes movies that stand the test of time. But there's certainly like a, you know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is definitely a movie that is about the 80s and, and what growing up was like in the 80s. There's a lot there in terms of, you know, both parents being away from the home and him him being able to right. even get away with what he was doing. Uh, and then you think about, you know, there's the Michael Jackson in the early 80s, but that generation also is the generation of Kurt Cobain and uh, and also Pearl Jam. And so uh, very, you know, in, within that generation, even a shift in terms of musical interest. One way to look at it, well, I mean, we'll probably get back to this later too, is that Gen X is almost, in stuff, stuff that I've researched and read, kind of considered almost a middle child in terms of being kind of not really for not really much attention paid to it based on, like you said, the baby boomers and then millennials and Gen Z. Like Gen X is kind of the middle child who, you know, we're, nobody's spending a lot of time thinking about. Yeah. Well, we're definitely going to come back to that. Yeah. So uh, hang with us here in the podcast because, I mean, what we're about to discuss, I think, will be really helpful for you. But also... Uh, we'll come back to some of these uh, observations of Generation X and kind of close down with some of those at the end. But obviously, the, the reason, Matt, I wanted to have this conversation with you, we could discuss this from a variety of angles with different people, but because of your background and your expertise, I'm sure you have a lot of insights into those who are in this particular place. So I wonder if you could first lay out, how would you describe generally life for those who are in middle age? And can you paint a picture of what they're dealing with on a general basis? And what is kind of the everyday rhythm or flow that you have observed them both personally, but also mm -hmm. professionally as you talk with people? Yeah, I think several things. I think the middle age is a, is a time of significant stress, but often not necessarily one big stressful event. Uh, it's a multitude of stressful events. And so when you're looking at, and I'll, we'll go deeper into this, but you know, another way of describing people in middle age is that they're, they're called the sandwich generation as well, um, which is that they're often taking care of 
older adults in their family, as well as taking care of children. So they're the pressures of that are, are fairly significant. And, you know, there's a, there's a, I think with middle age especially, there's a little bit of the, the frog in the boiling water kind of idea. Uh, if you've never heard that story, if you take a, a frog and you drop it into boiling water, you know, the, the frog will jump out. It's hot, right? Okay. But if you take a frog, and don't do this at home, it's really kind of sadistic. But if you do that, but if you take a frog, you put it in lukewarm water and you gradually turn up the temperature the frog's skin gets used to the incremental changes of temperature and eventually boils to death without ever knowing that it was boiling to death. Again, don't do that at home. But I think a lot of people in middle age are kind of accumulating stress. And there's a lot, there's quite a bit of research about kind of the accumulation of stress and how it ultimately affects people. So I think that's a, a big piece. One, you know, they're dealing with older relatives. They're dealing with their children. Uh, they're also dealing with potentially the beginnings of health issues for themselves, whether it's high blood pressure or cholesterol and what the future might hold for that. Uh, they're also looking at their parents' history and kind of looking to stave off some of those health issues that they might be experiencing, uh, certainly financial stressors, which I'll, I'll talk more about as we go along. So there's, there's quite a bit that they're dealing with. None of it kind of rises to the level often that they would say, you know, I need help or I'm really struggling uh, it's, but it's the accumulation of it that I think has a negative effect on, on their life. I think also in terms of, here's a broader thing. I mean, our life expectancy now in this country is around 78. And now that doesn't mean, I always tell my students, if your grandmother's turning 78, it doesn't mean you send her a card saying, way to stay alive, grandma, right? Okay. If you live till 78, you're probably got a chance of living well into your 80s. Mm -hmm. Really, if you look at life expectancies between developing countries and developed countries, um, the change in life expectancy is mainly based on child mortality. Uh, so if we can solve the child mortality problem, that drastically raises the average age, uh, as well as, um, you know, lack of war will also, you know, those are two big influencers. However, what we're seeing is a greater increase in terms of life expectancy. So people are looking at their lives in middle age saying, you know what, I need to be planning financially to live well into my 80s, potentially, but we, we still haven't changed our idea of when retirement is going to be. And we haven't changed the age at which kind of corporate America starts to put people out to pasture. So there becomes this stressor about making sure they're having enough income to survive, but retirement age at 65, life expectancy used to be 68. Now life expectancy is much longer. And so people are, when, when you have downturns in the economy like we have right now, for middle-aged people, this is a very stressful time because the downturn in the economy, the rise in inflation, not only are you worried, are my kids going to be able to get a job when they graduate from college, but also you're looking at your 401k and you're looking at your investments and going, Am, are we going to be okay? So there's, there's a lot that goes into those types of life events potentially having stress, you know, adding stress to them as well. So that's just a kind of a broad view of all that they're dealing with. Yeah, so that's a great overview. It's kind of negative, and we'll hopefully get into some of the, some of the positives mm -hmm. here. So maybe carrying on, on with that, what, what would you say are some of the particular and unique potential pitfalls for people who are in middle age? Uh, I, I think a core issue is when you get to middle age, a lot of how you have decided to live life is going to define how you view your life today. Now, the good news is that you're not 
80 and looking back at your life completely, there's still time ahead. You know, some people talk about people having a midlife crisis and there's another person who I, I, I agree with, they call it a midlife consciousness, that sometimes there's an awareness of, okay, I haven't lived a life that I had planned to live, and uh, I want to make different decisions going forward. Now, if that just includes buying a sports car, then that, that's problematic. It, and there, there's a book that we'll talk about in the future, but life, research has shown this as well as scripture shows this, life is about relationships. It's about relationship with one another, it's about relationship with God. And the further we move away from that, and our society pulls us away from that. Our society pulls us to money, pulls us to status, pulls us to power. And the further we move away from the focus of life being relationships, the, the harder it becomes. And so I, I think there are a lot of potential pitfalls that steer us away from that. Erickson, in his stages of development, uh, looks at middle, middle age as the stage of generativity versus stagnation. So meaning that this is a time where people are investing in the next generation, whether that's children or coworkers or students in our case here, those relationships are significant and those investments are significant. And I think that's where if, if we were pursuing purely money or power, uh, I think we're missing the significance of what we really are designed to pursue. So I think some of the pitfalls are often connected to, like, what have you used to kind of define your life already? And is that starting to come up short? And so I think it's good to kind of do an analysis of that and go, okay, you know, am I, am I happy? Do I feel alive? You know, there was this exercise I had to do in this humanistic psychology class, which I'm not a humanist, but it was when I'm in my doctoral work. And we had to basically every day for a week at 15-minute increments, we had to write down what we were doing and ask ourselves, does this make me feel alive inside or does it make me feel dead inside? And it was really insightful. It was like really insightful to kind of walk through your week and go, oh, wow, I'm doing all of these things that really make me feel dead inside. Now, there are things that we all do that make us feel dead inside, taxes, paying bills, that kind of stuff. Um, but what I found was, and this was a humanistic psychology class and I'm not a humanist, but I found actually for the most part where I found that I was alive where I found joy, I was like, that's the leading of the Holy Spirit in those areas in my life as well. Uh, one of my favorite lines of any movie is in the movie Chariots of Fire, where Eric Little, who's a Christian getting ready to run in the 19, I think 1922 Olympics, his sister, he was, he was a missionary to China, and his sister is telling him he needs to come back to the mission and forget all of this running. And he says to her, and he's very kind and gentle, and he says, I, I believe that God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And I think looking at our lives in terms of where is the joy, you know, where is the joy of the Spirit, even for our kids, you know, the gospel means good news. And I talk to a lot of students who don't necessarily see the good news when they look at their parents' lives. They look at them as being unhappy, stressed, not liking their jobs. Uh, and so a lot of students are kind of questioning in their own parents' lives. Like, cause, so I've had students come to me because I, I actually really love what I do. And uh, they go, you seem really happy. You know, what's your problem? You know, <laughs> so a lot of times, you know, we see people living lives of quiet desperation, you know, not terribly happy in their choices. Uh, and it trickles down in terms of, you know, if we're looking at our, at our people in the middle age, if we're looking at them and saying, okay, this is where my life goes 20 years from now. Is that a life that I want? Uh, and I think it's important for us to ask those questions. Am I living the life that I want? The answers to those questions, and we'll talk about it more, sometimes the solutions to those questions of not being happy end up 
leading to more unhappiness, not necessarily leading to, to greater happiness. Well, you've already, I think, alluded to some of these. You've just identified some of the clear pitfalls. What are some of the unique opportunities? If we were to flip this around and identify the things that those in middle age are really in an opportune position to affect, whether it's change or influence, mm -hmm. how would you address those? And I think influence is a great word. Um, I think in our culture, we often focus on leadership. But to me, leadership broken down is influence. And so a lot of people think, well, I can't be a leader. You know, I'm working as a custodian at a high school. Well, and they think of leadership as being, you know, take that hill or, you know, start this company. Well, you can have influence in whatever position you're in, whatever job you're in. You can have influence over the people that are around you. It doesn't mean that you have to be the boss to have influence. So you can have influence on people, above, like, in a sense, above you financially, and we can have influence on people uh, beneath us. Unfortunately, in, in order to do that, uh, C.S. Lewis said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Well, the stressors that we find ourselves under, especially at middle age, when we keep accumulating stressors as life goes on, and it's probably really the, a time of the most stress. When you think about, you know, I talk to college students all the time who are struggling to get stuff done, and I say, well, how did you study when you were in high school? And they tell me how they studied, and I go, okay, is your life less busy or more busy now than it was in high school? And it's significantly busier. So unless you make concessions to the added stress that you have in college that you didn't have in high school, you have to make concessions to that. So, and that doesn't stop. When you get into your 20s, you accumulate more things that are potentially stressors. And then middle age, I think, is the height of that, of stressors in your life. So that all distracts us potentially from thinking about who are the people that I can influence. You know, in one of my favorite passages in, in 2 Corinthians, it talks about the, that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He didn't have to. God doesn't need us to reconcile his peace, people to himself, but he chose for us to be a part of that. And, and one of my favorite verses, and it says that, you know, because of Christ, we no longer view people from a worldly point of view, that we view people as eternal beings who have an eternal destiny, and that the people around us are all people that we can potentially have influence over, and we've been called to have influence over. So the person who's checking our groceries at the grocery store is someone that we can have influence over and we can encourage. Uh, we lose that when we become more and more kind of focused on self. And we lose the opportunity to have that influence. I think it's in that influence and it's in those relationships where joy is really found. We think that joy is found in money. We think that joy is found in success. That's ultimately not where joy is found. Uh, there's this book that we'll talk about several times and I'll recommend this book called Adaptation to Life, uh, written by George Valiant. And uh, it's based on the Grant study, which is the long longest longitudinal study ever done started in the 1930s at Harvard with 200-some Harvard undergraduates. And it followed them through their entire life. And there are some really interesting conclusions that we'll continue to talk about today. Uh, but there are some really interesting conclusions. And, and one of the things you would say, okay, so all of these undergraduates at Harvard, when they were a part of this study, all of them were men. All of them were white. Uh, all of them were at Harvard. So you, if you think about the people who would have the, the most privilege or the most opportunities in our society, it would be these men. They didn't release the names of the people in this study until they would pass away, but President Kennedy was in the study. Ben Bradley, who was the editor of the Washington Post, was in the study as well. But when you think about it, they looked at these, you know, 200-some men, and they've also continued to follow their marriages and then continue to follow their children. If they all kind of started out at the same place, all had the same opportunities, 
some ended up significantly more joyful and happy than others. And they were really looking at like what led to a healthy life. And one of the determining things was, and the author says it all the time, it's relationships, 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 just like real estate, right? It's location, location, location in life. Life is about relationships. Mm -hmm. And so it's looking for those relational opportunities to connect with people. So is there something, you brought that up as a, as a potential asset to being middle-aged. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like, are, are you suggesting that the opportunity for influence is greater because one's in, in his or her middle age? Or how do you view that? I, I think everybody has opportunity for some degree of influence. I do think that by virtue of the position of, of middle age, certainly if if you know if people have children, there's certainly an area of significant influence there. Uh, typically in middle age is when people make the most money that they'll ever make, also have, and the reason why they're making that mo- the most money is they're typically in positions of, uh, of some power, whether it's management or whatever. So I think it's the time at which we can be the most influential. There's more, I think, easy avenues to be influential, influ- influencing change within an organization, uh, influencing individual people, mentoring people, grow, helping to grow people. So I do think middle age offers some really unique opportunities that, you know, a college student might not have in terms of influence, you know, numbers of people or people willing to hear what they have to say. Uh, So I do think there are some unique opportunities that when we look back on our lives in our 80s, and Erickson talks about that stage as being a stage of integrity or despair, that people look back on their lives and look at the decisions they've made and who they've influenced in their lives. And they either look back on their life with a sense of integrity that they've lived according to the way that they designed to they designed to live or God had designed for them to live, or they look back with a sense of despair that they had missed opportunities and had not lived life in the way that they had wanted to. And so I think when if we engage in relationships, most people looking back in that case, do not look back with, with such despair. You know, you hear that all the time. Nobody ever said they wanted to, they wish they had spent one more day at work. Right. You know, they wish they had had one more conversation with their kids or another conversation with their dad. Uh, it, it's always, to me, it's always about relationships. It's very rarely, oh, I wish I made that deal at work as opposed to, you know, unless it was maybe right. buying crypto, you know, back in 2009. Then maybe that would be a regret that, right. you know, hey, I wish I had bought crypto back then. But other than that, it's mostly about relationships. Yeah, it seems to me, too, that it's easy to be, as you say, people are sort of looking for leadership opportunities and then maybe to some degree influence or to be kind of asked for their insight or wisdom. And yet, especially if a person has children, there are these sort of built-in human beings in that person's life into which you have a tremendous amount Mm -hmm. of influence. And it seems to me oftentimes on the economy of people's kind of interest and influence, that falls rather low. That we, we don't often think, it, at least not maybe in, in certain circles or even in this part of, the, part of the world, so much as an enormous amount of my role is to influence the humans that are in my home that have been entrusted to me to raise and to speak into mm-hmm. and to pour into. It's always outside of that. It kind of, as you mentioned, you know, the hill to take and looking for some sort of grand Hollywood-like, there's a company that you've reformed or you've yeah. started or or a very worthy and noble cause that exists hundreds of uh, miles or, or th- uh, you know thousands of miles away from where you are that you want to affect change at. And yet mm-hmm. there are these people right in front of you yep. that you have pr- and, and probably the greatest access to mm-hmm. and, the, and the greatest open door to have an influence. But I don't think that we think of that so much as an opportunity yeah. to influence. 
Yeah, I mean, to share a personal story. So, you know, my dad at one point had 5,000 people working for him. His company, uh, which was INA, and merged with Connecticut General, became Cigna, which you've probably heard of. And it was really more of a takeover. So all the people that worked for INA were kind of starting to be pushed out. My dad wasn't a perfect man. My, my parents are divorced. Um, and at the time of the divorce, this takeover happened, and he started to get pushed out. In fact, by the end, when he left there, about 10 or so years later, he went from having 5,000 people working for him to having one. It was a pride-swallowing siege every day he went to work. And the reason why he did that was that in order to pursue his career more fully, which I think my, my dad was a very gifted man, uh, he would have had to move to Chicago, Los Angeles, something like that. So he would have had to choose to leave me and my brothers behind. Now, we were in junior high and high school at the time, but he decided to stay. And uh, I didn't know until much later, where actually there was a court case my dad was involved in, just how hard it was for him. The end result of that, though, is uh, the last 15 years of his life, you know, we spent as a, as a family so much time together. We used to do every Christmas trips to Disney together with my brothers and their wives and my, my wife and then my kids. And, that, and I told my dad in my last conversation with him before he passed, I said, none of this would have been possible if you had chosen your career over us. My dad did not have any regrets at the end. And uh, he made a very conscious decision. You know, he grew up without a dad. His dad, my grandmother raised all of her children by herself during the Depression. My dad hardly knew his dad at all because he was the youngest. And he made a conscious decision to not be that dad. And significantly more meaningful, I think, to him than if he had become a CEO somewhere. So... Um, that's always been kind of an example to me. And it's, it's amazing because my, yeah. my dad didn't have an example of a dad, yet he became a significantly better father than he ever had. And so, I th and now my dad's choice was a, was a stark one. I mean, it was pretty obvious. I'm choosing my career or I'm choosing my family. So I, I, he was faced with a, like a, a Sophie's choice. You know, he had to go one way or the other. There was no co combination. I think a lot of times we, we feel like we're doing the one, but we're really doing the other. So we really think we're investing in our kids, but no, we're actually really investing in our careers. And, and we can rationalize. Well, you know, part of taking care of my kids is I need to make money to be able to pay the bills, to do all these things. And that's true. And that's true. But trying to find that way of making sure, like you said, like we're always looking outside for influence rather than he, these are the people that I can really influence in a lot of ways. Uh, and one of my favorite phrases is, is, you know, it's not sexy. You know, doing it where you start a company and you start a big mentorship program in the inner city or at your church. Something or, you, know, you could put on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, and you get a plaque somewhere, you know. The, the day in, day out, just being involved in your kids' lives uh, and having uh, honest conversations with, you know, Dr. Dr. Black, who I respect quite a bit, um, we, we've had a lot of conversations about this in terms of parenting and that, you know, parenting is a lot of parent people think that parenting is about protecting, but it's really more discipleship. And if we think of parenting as discipleship rather than protecting and providing, then we're going to be a lot more honest with our kids about our struggles in our lives. We're going to let them in to our lives, just like you would if you were doing a discipleship relationship at church. You would certainly let them into the mistakes that you've made, the sin in your life certainly age appropriate, but there's a way to, to influence our children in a way that we kind of let them in uh, to watch kind of how we, how we do life and 
watch our failings and apologize for them at the same time. So it doesn't have to be that we, you know, provide this perfect idea of what a a dad is or a mom is. So yeah, I think you're right. I think we we sometimes forget the significance of those relationships closest to home. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Your story there, which is a great example with your father, raises moving into a few more specific areas about middle age. Do men and women handle middle age differently? I think so. I mean, I I think it's actually men and women have come closer in some of these areas and in one particular area. But I I do think that uh, women tend to be, generally speaking, more relationally focused than men. And so I think women might look at some of these things different. However, you know, when we talked about kind of latchkey kids and all of that, and there's nothing wrong with women being in the workforce. Uh, But what we're seeing in women today are things that we saw in men for years. So along with being in the workforce also comes some not so great things, high blood pressure, heart disease. And one that I think is a, a major issue is that people tend to have work friends and they mistake work friends for being real friends. And so if we think that life is about relationships, but it's not just about, you know, cursory kind of, you know, small talk relationships, it's about depth in relationship. So historically, men have not had a tremendous number of intimate friends because they have work friends. So they think they have friends, but they really don't. And when you retire or leave a job, and those of you listening, if you've ever left a job, whether it was at Starbucks or even here at Cairn, I mean, the the chances of the people that you were working with still being a significant part of your life are slim and none. And slim's on a bus leaving town, right? That, that That's just how it works. Work friends often don't become lifelong friends. So historically, then, when men would retire, they would retire and not really have any close relationships. Women tended to have closer relationships. So women now are also experiencing the same thing. They're experiencing work friends rather than the deep abiding relationships. And, you know, if work takes up 40, 50, 60 hours of the week, um, that's you're spending time with people that you're not really deeply connected with for that length of time. So I, while I do think they approach it somewhat differently, I think there are some similarities that are developing in terms of some of the, the stressors and the lack of, of deep relationship. Now, I'm talking more about people outside the church. I think one of the things that certainly the church provides, a healthy church, and you know I talked about COVID last time, and we could talk about COVID again in terms of the lack of relationships that we've been able to have because we haven't been able to be at church for a long time during the pandemic. But typically, Christians often can get you know more deeply involved in, in relationships. However, I've heard from a number of women in a number of different churches that often churches don't know what to do with working women. A lot of the Bible studies and things, there's, you know, there's, uh, there's mops groups, you know, mothers of preschool kids. There's, there's a lot geared toward women who stay home. But I've heard from a lot of women that there isn't as much geared toward, relationally geared toward women who, who work outside the home. Uh, but in churches, there can be with small groups and otherwise more chances to connect relationally. So in that way, I would say that, that the Christian community has, a, has something to offer, certainly even relationally, that, that the rest of the world doesn't have. This may seem like a question out of left field or right field or whatever direction they come. But I saw a, an article recently, an interview with Matt Damon. I thought something that he mentioned, he was talking a lot about middle age and mid- midlife as, you know, as an actor, but also as a man. And he mentioned the propensity to cry much more easily. And according to him, 
and I forget exactly how he worded it, but it, but it was almost like this is something that's going to happen a lot more often in midlife, and, and he didn't seem particularly upset about it, and the context was, of course, in acting, but also then outside. So this had me wondering, I mean, there's a lot of stuff physiologically going on with people in middle age. Is there a connection for men specifically between midlife and crying more frequently? Yeah, you see, I'm crying right now, so you have to <laughs> excuse me for a second. You got a little teared up. I got a little teared up even about the question. How did you know, Nate? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not sure that I would say there's anything necessarily physiologically going on in this group of people that hadn't happened in previous generations. I do think, though, that while we've had some struggles, you know, we, we've, in our society, have treated kind of gender relationships as a zero-sum game. So... Back in the 70s, as, as women started to increase, men started to decrease, rather than seeing that, that men have value and women have value. So I, I do think, and there's been a lot written about men struggling to figure out, well, who are they supposed to be in this society? However, on, on a good side, I do think that there is a greater range of emotion that is becoming socially acceptable uh, for men. In fact, I was watching a baseball game the other day, and you know, I, I'm a Gen Gen X guy, so uh, one of my favorite players growing up was George Brett. He used to play for the Kansas City Royals. Now, this guy always just seemed to me like a man's man. Like, he just, uh, he was a great ball. I'm a Yankees fan, but I just admired him. And um, he was talking to one of the guys in the booth who who played for the Royals, Carlos Beltran. And when before he left, he said, you know, they hugged. And he's like, you know, I'm a hugger now. Like, when I was growing up, I mean, you know, coming up, I, I used to shake hands. And then, you know, over time, there was this player who used to play for the Royals. He, like, you know, he taught me to be a hugger. Like, he kept hugging me. And and uh, and, he, and he's like, and he feels okay with it, you know? And so, now he's not even, he, he would be the next generation. He was, right. but but the idea of, hey, this is much more socially acceptable and much, and, and now I think with that, maybe this is where Matt Damon is, is, is coming from here. We all make decisions based not based entirely on our emotions, but our emotions impact our decision-making. I think the difference between people growing up today and maybe some people in previous generations is at least I know what my emotions are that are, like some people will say to me, well, I don't, I don't make decisions based on emotions. I'm like, well, no, you do. You're just not aware of what they are. Um, now I think people are more aware. So I certainly think if the, the more we can be connected in the moment, to what we're experiencing, the more I think we can uh, shape those relationships and those experiences and also experience them, you know, more fully. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about Matt Damon, and I don't know if what he was talking about in terms of his kids, maybe, but to be able to appreciate the significance of events with our kids in the moment that we experience them, I think is, is significant. Otherwise, we can kind of just run through through life without awareness of those things. And so um, I don't know if that's what, kind of what he was referring to, but also just, you know, the sounds like he's saying, I feel like it's okay for yeah, me to, to, yeah. to tear up. Yeah, or, yeah. Okay. It's sort of like easier to be moved to emotion. Like mm -hmm. even the sense that, you know, as, a, as an actor, there are times where you're, you're, you're called on to cry. Yeah. For it seems it's like, mm -hmm. okay, I can do that more easily now. Yeah. That's, that's more brewing under the surface. So, but I think it was connected to what you're saying. And it was also just, I think, sort of a funny um, observation, but I would imagine too, if, if it is true that those in middle life are mm -hmm. doing more of this kind of taking stock, mm. you're seeing things more for what they are and the significances of those things. And so those things are going to be more kind of profound, yeah. right? Yeah. More poignant. And, and that may draw emotion out more. Whereas maybe in earlier periods of life, 
you're not really doing as much analysis and yeah. reflection. You're just kind of doing. Yeah. And but but you also have a greater context mm -hmm. now. You know, even the story yeah. you shared about about your dad. It's like the the context now that you have to share that versus what it was when you were actually experiencing mm -hmm. those things. Yeah. Um. And and of course that's going to pull out more emotion and 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 that may um. Yeah. Be reflected in different ways. I think there. Uh, I think going back to my dad, I remember. You know, the first time I ever saw my dad cry was when my grandmother died, his mom. And I, we were at the funeral, and I, and I remember it was the, you know, it was a kind of a watershed moment for me, but also realizing, like, I had only ever seen this woman as my grandmother and realizing, well, that, that was his mom. That's the person who, like, fed him when he was a kid and changed his diapers and did all of these things for him. And, like, and... I wish I had seen more of that from my dad, actually. You know, it's interesting we talk about seminal moments in our society. I do think that this generation, of which Michael Jordan is one, is more comfortable with emotion. I don't know if you remember, uh, are you a Michael Jordan fan? Okay. I remember Michael Jordan. For okay. Her. Yeah. Um, after his father died and he came back uh, and they won the championship, I don't know if you remember, there's this scene of him like clutching the trophy and weeping, which... Michael Jordan, certainly nobody thought that he was not a man's man, you know, probably one of the most competitive people that's probably ever lived. But I think people understood where that was coming from. And I do think that was a, there, there's a movement toward that being more okay, um, which I think like we're talking about, I think is ultimately a good thing to be more aware of ourselves. It doesn't mean, I think if we cry more easily, that also means that we can, you know, be more joyful. I think that we can express a wider range uh, of emotions that are also good for our kids to see as well. How about marriage? I mean, we, I'm sure, would both agree that marriage is so important in society as, as a bedrock. Are there particular dangers for marriage in midlife that people should be mindful of? Well, one of the things that happens during midlife, and you see definitely an uptick in divorce around the 25-year range of marriage, and part is of it that is right. I thought it would have been earlier. It is. It's, there's one early, like around six years, and then there's another one around 25 years, and and part of that is because that's when the kids are graduating. So there's a, the empty nest. So I, I I think what ends up happening, you know, they they it could be true uh, that their marriage is is problematic, but I think that's one of those times again. There are certain times in life, and I think what we're talking about is if people can be more insightful and more aware throughout their lives, I think then we can potentially avoid these, these cliffs for people. But I think there are certain times that we take stock of our lives. Um, we take stock of our lives, certainly when we lose a parent. You know, we take stock of our lives uh, when we have children. We take stock of our lives again in our future when our kids graduate from high school and they're kind of moving on. And we start asking those questions like, am I really happy? And so... I think it can be challenging. It's, it can be very challenging for marriages in a lot of different ways. I think there are some opportunities. Like Sun Tzu said, every battle is won before it's ever fought. There is going to come a time when the kids graduate from high school or college, you know, or you kick them out when they're 27. Uh, there's going to come a time where it's just you and your spouse. And depending on how you've structured your life up till that point will uh, in some ways, significantly influence where you are. So, for example, uh, and this is also so for you younger listeners, uh, this would be appropriate for you if you're newly married or starting out with kids. The marriage has to be central. I've often said to couples, 
you don't invite people to church and stand up and make vows before God for your job, other than if you do a some type of uh, you know baby dedication. We don't even do that for our children, but we invite people and we have a big party and we make vows before God for our marriage. And then somehow other things start to take precedence over the marriage, even though they all come from the marriage. We wouldn't have kids if it didn't if we weren't married. We wouldn't have this big house if we weren't married. We wouldn't have to have this income if we weren't married and had the house and the kids. And somehow those things end up taking precedence over. So a lot of parents end up having the only conversations they have are about their kids. So I, one of the things I encourage couples is to make sure they're going out on dates and spending time together where they're just talking about themselves and their relationship and their friends and not just about their kids. Because when your kids graduate, if everything has been a family, what's left? What's left of the two of you? And I think a lot of people end up feeling that and they, they don't know. They wake up next to a stranger. That's how they feel. And so it, it's, it can be a big, it can be a huge problem both in the Christian community and outside the Christian community in terms of divorce at that time. Like I said, I think the way to stave that off is to be investing in those relationships all along the way and not putting it on the back burner and kind of being a unit of four or five or six and then all of a sudden going down to two. You'll find at that point sometimes people have very little in common. They don't really feel connected to one another anymore. So um, you know, my wife and I do that. We try to go away overnight, you know, once every couple of months. We try to have a date night. We try to talk about things other than our kids. And uh, it's really, really important. It doesn't mean that you can't fix those issues at that time, but it's certainly easier. It's like a car. If you're doing preventative maintenance, you tend not to get hit with those giant repairs later. You can still fix the car if you get a giant repair, but it's going to cost a lot more. It's going to be a lot harder. So there is hope if they're at a stage where they're in a struggling marriage, but it's better if they take those times earlier on, on. Earlier on, yeah. Well, let's come back now. We mentioned coming back to Generation X and some things about that group particularly. So you can tell from my, my intro, I, I sort of have a hypothesis here that there hasn't really been nearly as much attention shed on, on the Gen X crowd. And so in order to, to kind of get to that, I thought I'd read just a few mm -hmm. uh, observations I found online. And again, this is just kind of Google basic research, some things that people suggested. So I wanted to throw these out, these statements, and see if you agree with some of them. And you can just grab one or two of them and, and, and tell, me, tell me what you think. In, in looking recently, I, I've heard it hypothesized, and some of this is related to statistical information. The number of Gen Xers is 5 million fewer than there are boomers or millennials. So we're talking maybe about a, a smaller group of people. Mm -hmm. Reported stress levels, you've kind of alluded to this already, of Gen Xers are significantly higher than those that they are sandwiched between the millennials and, and boomers. However, capacity to handle stress appears to be higher than other generations. Divorce and both parents working, that is, their parents, uh, the, the factors of divorce and having both parents work, resulted in a lot of Gen Xers raising themselves in some capacity. And similarly, being alone in that respect led to significant ability to be independent and to be on their own and also to sort of be okay with that. And then the last one, marketing trends appear to be unconcerned generally with the Gen X market, pretty much skipping them and essentially mm -hmm. targeting millennials as the group that they're, they're going after. Do any of those strike you as true or vastly untrue or just particularly interesting and you want to you comment on any of those? 
Yeah, I mean, they're all pretty interesting. I mean, I could comment on, on any of them. I think the one thing that I would probably uh, point out is I do think that the that you don't hear a lot about Gen X at this point. And again, I I don't know if that's true of middle age throughout history. Uh, I don't know if the baby boomers got a lot of attention. The baby boomers have tended to get a lot of attention. And so yes, they have. their children probably not as much, which are the Gen Xers. So I think it's the the parents were always getting a lot of attention and not as much you know, the kids. And also, I think when when Gen Xers grow, grew up, one of the reasons why I said that the, the Challenger explosion uh, was incredibly significant is I think, you know, I grew up in the 80s, late 70s, 80s. And, you know, if you listen to the music at the time, I always think there's a psychology to music that's popular at certain times that couldn't be popular at other times. You know, a lot of synthesizers and you know, men at work and, you know, all these different bands that probably, you know, when you're going through, when society's going through harder times, those bands tend not to be as successful. And um, so the 80s, you know, the economy was going well for the most part during Ronald Reagan's administration and through the 80s. And then I think the Challenger explosion was kind of a, a wake up to the, what the real world could be like, that, that there is tragedy in the world. But I think that I think you're right in terms of there's a difference between functioning okay alone, but I think there's a big problem of loneliness among middle-aged people. And so you can be lonely and be in, be in a group of people, and you could be alone and not be lonely. I think there is there is an epidemic of loneliness that I, I think is true of people in, in middle age. And part of it is because they- Uniquely to middle-aged people, do you I, think? Or? I, I'm not sure I would say uniquely to middle-aged people, but I think because of the other stressors that are in their lives, when we add loneliness to that, um, it's an accelerant on all of those other other issues. And and again, going back to what I talked about in terms of us being hardwired for relationship, I think not having those deeper connections, but again, maybe not even knowing that they needed them. Because like you said, if they kind of raised themselves growing up, they might not have ever known that they really needed this. But there's a there's a lot of loneliness. I think the pandemic has made that worse with people working from home. But I think that that's where I see that being okay and being alone, but I think there's a lot of loneliness. I, I wonder the capacity to handle stress. I wonder if that's, like I said, I, I haven't examined at different stages of mid, midlife. I think, uh, you know, people in middle age are kind of like the glue of our society, right? You know, they're raising kids, they're paying bills, they're the ones paying the lion's share of the taxes, um, they're taking care of older adults. So, uh, they better be okay with handling stress. Yeah. So I think they probably look like they're okay with handling stress. Maybe not as good as, as they would like to be, but I think I would say probably they, they can. I don't know, you know, I haven't studied what the baby boomers looked like in, in midlife, whether they were handling stress well or, or not. Yeah, the marketing piece, I find it, I always find marketing stuff to be interesting and in that it's really they go where the markets are and, you know, they're going to go where they can sell. And it seems like, it's a smaller group, the Gen X group, and there's more attention certainly played to millennials and Gen Z, and they're probably going to significantly market, you know, more there. But again, it goes back to they're not really the the focus of the energy of society. When you hear talk of political campaigns, you don't hear a lot about Gen X being pursued. But interestingly, and again, I'm not a political scientist, but I do think a lot of Gen Xers were involved in Donald Trump being elected. They, you know, if you think about the forgotten people, part of that is part of that generation too. So um, who are looking at their lives 
and wondering if they're going to have enough money for retirement, how are they going to be able to take care of their kids, all of that is connected to that. So again, I'm not a political scientist, but uh, it's interesting. I think that generation is in large part being forgotten. Yeah, I actually found, I mean, this whole conversation and some of these statistics and observations, sparse though they may be, I found them really interesting and in a way really encouraging. Because mm-hmm. it seems to me like for those people in middle age, you have a capacity to work hard, to take on a lot of things. You've built up a lot of experiences. You have the opportunity for tremendous influence. You may need a little less handholding and a little coddling than, mm-hmm. than other generations would. So you have this great opportunity and incredibly rich time for that. There's potential pitfalls Mm -hmm. if you're not uh, cognizant of the stress, if you're not caring for that, if you're not attending to these things. So I think, and you kind of alluded to this a moment ago, I think that there's this, there's a great opportunity here. So that should be really encouraging for anybody who's in middle age that Mm -hmm. it's almost as if you're in your prime, you know, Uh, like Doc Holliday. Yeah. Not me. I'm in my prime. Yeah. <laughs> so you're in your prime and you're ready to go. And yep. so there's stuff you've got to attend to, but uh, you're you're really, there's a lot to be grateful for Absolutely. in that place. Um, so if you're cautious about these other things, then there's, there's the, the opportunity for great impact. Well, and I, I agree with you. I think going back to what we said earlier, that how you've chosen to live your life up until this point, if you've chosen to pursue money, you're choosing to pursue something that isn't going to last. And uh, if you're pursuing influence and relationships, that's where life is. And what's great about midlife is one, there, like you said, there are a lot of opportunities. I'm gonna talk about one in just a second. There are a lot of opportunities. And if you realize that, there's life left to pursue those opportunities. It's not, you're not 85 looking back, you're 50 looking ahead. Um, one opportunity, I've noticed, you know, we talked about the pandemic before, is a lot of people, my friend from Georgia used to say, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting this. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting somebody who's asking an existential question of life. I saw the recent statistics, the great resignation, more than 70% of the people who quit their jobs and left are unhappy. Again, they, they felt unhappiness, but because they thought their life was defined by their work, they thought if they changed their job, they would be happy. It's a fool's errand. It's about relationship with God and relationship with one another. What I'm saying is, though, that those people in our communities, they will fall back asleep. Give it six more months when we're past the pandemic. They'll be out on the soccer fields again with their kids. They'll be working whatever job they're working. This level of kind of existential awareness about their life will go away. We all, that's our tendency is to, we, we're, we tend to forget. This is a tremendous opportunity to have neighborhood Bible studies, to just, I have deep conversations everywhere I go. The la- I, I wrote recently, one of, the, one of the last ones, I was at the grocery store with the person ringing up my groceries. If we're open to it, if we're able to see beyond ourselves, able to see that people are eternal beings with an eternal destiny, and because of Christ, we no longer view them as just the deli guy or the person who delivers our mail, or our coworker in the next cube. We actually start to see them as people who have an eternal destiny, who have legitimate questions about life. This is a tremendous opportunity. More so, I think, than any time in my life is there an opportunity to have deep influence in people's lives, because people are hungry for it right now, because of everything everybody went through during the pandemic and, and what's that? what that's caused them to think about, about their own lives and about existence in general. So you're right. There are tremendous opportunities. By the way, parenting's a marathon. It's not a sprint. If you messed it up, 
you go to your kids and you ask for forgiveness. Your influence on their life is not just between zero and 17. You know, there is, my dad had tremendous influence in my life, you know, up until the day that he passed away. So I think there needs to be humility. And if we have messed it up, we need to be able to go and say, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't love you in the way that you should have been loved all along. I want to be a part of your life. There's opportunities always. It's not over. So you're right. I think there are tremendous opportunities at this stage of life, uh, in some ways more so than in any other, which is which is exciting. It's kind of like, uh, what was the joke during Custer's last stand? His one officer came to him and said, General Custer, I have some bad news and I have some good news. The bad news is we're completely surrounded. The good news is we can attack in any direction. So there are a lot of stressors in life. It's a matter of what direction are we going to go? What I say to people often is, have you learned enough yet that pursuing money really isn't the answer? That that's not really making you any happier. It's really we were designed to be in relationship, and that's the core of it. Well, my second to last question for you, I feel like you're already getting into, which is great, and that is, from a Christian perspective, how do you think we ought to be thinking about middle age differently, perhaps, than the world would? Well, I think it's a more natural thing as Christians to be thinking about influence because we talk about discipleship all the time. My personal bias is it's not enough just to invite people to church. We, we need to be reaching out to people in our community who are asking these hard questions, who are wrestling with these things. And we need to be people of influence in our community. Oftentimes I find that Christians become known for what they're against rather than what they're for. And we need to be for loving people well and loving people like Christ. And so I think that's a huge opportunity that I think we, we more naturally think of that. I mean, I know a lot of Christians, and this is an encouragement. I just know so many Christians in business who really lead like Jesus. They lead their business like Jesus. They are sacrificial servant leaders in their companies, and it does not go unnoticed. Sometimes people look at them and think they're crazy, but it doesn't go unnoticed. And I think it's a huge opportunity. We think about leadership so much differently than I think the world does. I think we often... The world thinks about, again, leadership as being what can I get out of this relationship rather than what can I give to this relationship. And so I think we have a huge uh, influence on people in the way that we look at things is very, very different, which then again goes back to people will ask us those questions. You know, I've had students when I taught at Rowan, I used to teach at Rowan University. I had a number of students come up to me and go, wow, you seem so much happier than the other, my other professors you seem so much happier with your life choices than my parents. What gives? And it just leads into those really impactful conversations. I think if we're focused on ourselves and focused on money, we're heading in the wrong direction. If we're focused on loving people like Christ, not only is it the right thing to do because the gospel kind of commands us to do that, uh, I think it actually surprisingly works as a leadership model. <laughs> So I think it really does allow for significantly more influence. And like I said, this book, Adaptation to Life, which I would recommend anybody read, and there's another book I'll recommend as well, which I just as a Yeah, that a, a was my last book. question. What, okay. what, what recommended resources? Well, the, the Adaptation to Life is a really interesting book, and he, he's written several other books after that about aging, which I think is are really interesting. But I think it's a really unique book. And like I said, the conclusions of that book, it's really looking at people throughout their entire life. It's, a long, it's the longest longitudinal study ever done. And really saying, okay, so what leads to people, what leads to happiness? And they determined, which is interesting, you know, all truth is God's truth. When you go, okay, so we knew, we've known this all along. It's, it's relationships, relationship with God and relationship with others that leads to a, a more significantly 
happy life. Ways of dealing with it, they talk about, and Dr. Black talks about this a lot, as we get older, developing a good sense of humor about ourselves. Uh, as we are decomposing before we actually die, you know, developing a good sense of humor about those things. I think uh, being altruistic, you know, investing in other people. The book says that. Scripture says that. I think those are, are in really important ways. So it's a very interesting book, very interesting to study this group of people. Um, so it's a good kind of academic book. I use it in all my, all my human development classes. And then his other books are really excellent. And the other book is, is, a, is a lighter read, but I... I uh, really appreciate Bob Goff. I don't know if you've have heard of Bob Goff, but uh, he, he has a book called, he has a couple of books, but one my favorite of his is called Everybody Always. And it's a it's about really looking for opportunities and, and thinking about loving everybody always, looking to love people. And uh, one of my favorite quotes, which I wish I could attribute it to myself, Bob Goff is a very successful attorney. And he said recently, I spent most of my life trying to be right. Now I just want to be Jesus. And uh, so he gave up being an attorney. And that's what attorneys try to do is be right. You know, and he just wants to be like Jesus. And I, I think that to me is, is the goal for all of us, is to be imitators of Christ. You know, it says, Jesus said, we'll, we'll be known by our love as I have loved you, so you should love one another. Maybe you won't have a Tesla. Maybe that won't be the definition of your life. And I think I, think I wouldn't shy away as a last word from the insight that, wow, these things that I've been pursuing in life haven't worked. I wouldn't be opposed to that realization because that insight can lead to change and that change can lead to greater happiness. And for those of you who are happy with the choices that you've made, impart those to others because I think that's really, really important for your kids and other people to know what does it mean to live an actually successful life. So there's a lot of opportunities, I think, in midlife, a lot of challenges. And you're right, they tend to get forgotten, which is why we're having this podcast today, right? We didn't do it about millennials. We did it about midlife. Right. Well, that's a fitting place to close. And uh, thank you again, Matt, for coming by, taking the time to talk these things over. And thanks for the resources, too. We'll make sure that we put some uh, opportunities for a couple of those books to be given away for people who are listening to the podcast to have access to. I'm sure they're worthwhile checking out. I hope this has been really helpful for those of you listening. And if you've got a middle-aged man or woman in your life in some capacity, please share this with him or her and let them know why you thought it was interesting and why you thought it might be helpful. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and it helps us if you leave us a review there as well. Thanks for listening. We look forward to welcoming you back next month for our next Karen Commons conversation.